Today at Reader's Corner, Eric Rauchway, author of Why the New Deal Matters. I'm Bob Custer. Welcome to Reader's Corner. Consider the greatest peacetime expression of common purpose in U.S. history. The New Deal altered Americans' relationship with politics, economics, that continue to resonate today. No matter where you look in America, there is likely a building or a bridge built through New Deal initiatives. If you have taken out a small business loan, backed by the federal government or drawn unemployment insurance, you can thank the New Deal. In his latest book, Why the New Deal Matters, historian and author Eric Rauchway looks at how the New Deal legacy, both for good and ill, informs the current debates around governmental responses to crises. Eric Rauchway is Distinguished Professor of History at the University of California, Davis, and has written seven books of U.S. history as well as a novel. His work has appeared in the New York Times, Dissent, and the Times Literary Supplement, among many other publications. Eric Rauchway, welcome to Reader's Corner. Thanks very much for having me. Well, let's dive right in, Eric. Uh, Your book has as its premise that the New Deal matters because we all live in it and that it marked the dramatic shift in power. How so? Well, you said, uh, I think correctly at the start, that uh, a lot of folks know that they live near probably a New Deal building or school, but I think that uh, we don't realize how we sort of move inside the New Deal all the time. You know, the minimum wage comes from the New Deal. The right to join a union comes from the New Deal. As you said, the small business loan program comes from the New Deal. The banks system that we have today with the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation comes from the New Deal. The stock market management system with the Securities and Exchange uh, Corporation comes from the New Deal. The, um, The federal currency itself comes from the New Deal's very first day. So the entire financial, banking, monetary, economic system we have, and that's only just getting started because if you think about the way New Deal transformed the landscape in the United States, it was the first national roads network. It built a tremendous number of bridges and highways and airports, and it really sort of altered the way Americans live on the land with the federal range management programs and the programs to alter the relationship between the federal government and native nations. I mean, one can simply go on and on and on. It's almost impossible. I mean, I think it is impossible to go through your day as an American uh, without encountering the New Deal in one way or another. You kick off your book with a visit to Arlington National Cemetery and to the graves of William Hushka and Eric Carlson, two people that I'm sure are not exactly household names. It's a chapter that discusses the Bonus Expeditionary Force, or what then was just called the Bonus Army, uh, which was a group of veterans from World War I that marched on Washington in 1932 because uh, – and I'm learning this from your book, of course – because they they wanted more benefits. They felt like they were being underserved by the government that they had served in World War I. How how does that uh, incident fit into your book, Why the New Deal Matters? Well, I wanted to start with that, not only because it happened in the middle of the election that first put Franklin Roosevelt into the presidency at the depths of the Great Depression, but also because it shows how important the rescue of democracy was to the New Deal. We often think about it in its economic aspects, but this idea that the New Deal was out to save Americans from some kind of 
political radicalism is one that I think we understate and that was really visible at the time. So as you correctly say, there were uh, some thousands, possibly even tens of thousands of veterans of what was then known as the Great War, World War One, who marched on Washington, D.C. in the summer of 1932 to ask for relief from the Depression. This was at a time when unemployment had gotten up to near 25%, when commodity prices had plummeted, so farmers really couldn't get a living uh, from growing their crops, and the United States economy, along with the global economy, was just sort of visibly broken. This was also a time before the GI Bill of Rights, which also came from at least a later phase of the New Deal, so that veterans of the Great War weren't entitled to benefits in the way that veterans of the U.S. Armed Forces are today. They were uh, entitled by a piece of ad hoc legislation from the 1920s to a lump sum payment that would be due in 1945, hence the bonus and they went to Washington to ask that it be paid early since so many of them were out of work along with their friends and families and neighbors. And Congress turned them down. Uh, then President Hoover said he would turn them down if uh, Congress passed the bill. And rather than go away, the Bonus Army stayed encamped in Washington, sort of set up a quasi-military force there and drilled in uh, good military order which became increasingly alarming to President Hoover and to many other members of the Washington administration and establishment, to the point that Herbert Hoover finally called out the Army, uh, then under Chief of Staff Douglas MacArthur, and drove them off using tanks and cavalry and tear gas. And that was all on film, because this was an era of newsreels, and Americans watching it in the summer of 1932 Hoover may have hoped, certainly expected, that they would identify with his instincts to restore good order, but instead a large if not number, if not a majority of Americans, identified with the veterans who were being run off by the army. And it almost certainly helped fuel uh, Roosevelt's campaign for the presidency and helped build support for the idea that we ought to have a new deal, that we ought to put people to work to give them meaningful jobs so that they weren't considered threats to social order. I'm glad you mentioned General Douglas MacArthur. I mean, most of us who have a cursory knowledge of American history remember when Truman fired him over the Korean War. Uh, he wanted to expand it. Truman did not. Um, his behavior at this particular time almost sets him up for what's to happen later on in his life, doesn't it? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I think it's because he got away with mutiny on 1932 that he did it again <laughs> under Truman, you know. <laughs> right. It basically, Hoover, having called out the army and seen uh, the destruction that was going on and probably had a sense of how it wasn't going the way he would have liked it to go, told MacArthur to quit, and MacArthur refused to do so. In fact, Hoover sent the order uh, at least a couple times, and MacArthur just refused and went ahead with it anyway. And Hoover decided it was better, uh, apparently, not to challenge MacArthur directly. But it's because of that episode and because of that kind of behavior that Roosevelt was really you know, worried about the fate of American democracy. I mean, here you had this army of the unemployed, that was a kind of represented a kind of threat to and discontent with government. Even if it was legitimate, it was still a, you know, a, a discontent with the way government worked and the idea that it seemed to be working for the rich and not for everybody else. And at the same time, you know, MacArthur posturing as the kind of military substitute for civil government was a different kind of threat. 
to the ordinary course of American democracy. So these things really had Roosevelt worried for what might become of the American form of government. You know, once he was elected, but before he took office, uh, a friend of his said to him, you know, if, if you succeed, you'll be the greatest of American presidents. And Roosevelt said, if I fail, I will be the last. <laughs> exactly. You know, one of the things that's uh, fascinating about this particular segment of your, your book is the fact that this bonus army seemed to be coming to Washington looking for some kind of a direct payment. Uh, Roosevelt, at this stage of his career anyway, was not exactly what I would call a raging liberal. Uh, he had a better idea, and that was that was work <laughs> relief. I wonder if you could explain the Civilian Conservation Corps and how that really winds up being a different kind of a solution that the Bonus Army wanted, but um, one that sure seemed to work. Right. I mean, I think you put your finger on one of the key philosophical pillars of the New Deal, which is Roosevelt did not like the idea of direct payments to the poor, what were then called what was then called a dole at the OLE, right? Sure. What mustn't have a dole, he liked to say. Right. And so what he wanted to do instead was to hire people into jobs that would be useful and would give people the dignity of work and the satisfaction of their own labor, and in so doing, show that the government would work for them as they would work for uh, public works projects. And so when Roosevelt first came into office, there were a number of pieces of legislation that were passed within just about the first three months or so, the famous 100 days. One of them allowed Roosevelt to set up something called the Civilian Conservation Corps, the CCC, as you say, which hired as many as about 300,000 uh, young men at a time and put them to work usually on projects to restore public lands. Uh, they were thought of as sort of reforestation projects, projects to prevent erosion. If you've ever been in a state or national park, you know, even now today, you're quite likely to see a plaque saying this or that road uh, drainage area. If you go to the Grand Canyon, it's the telephone wire that spans the canyon was put there by the CCC, the Civilian Conservation Corps. And in fact, this ties in directly to what happened with the Bonus Army. A contingent of them came back to Washington after Roosevelt was elected. And instead of sending out the army, he sent out Eleanor, to say hello and bring sandwiches to the, the men and to say, look, I've set aside uh, some thousands of jobs in the CCC specifically for you guys, for veterans of the Great War, and a large number of them took them. And it really defused the bonus army movement. As the leader of the movement said, there's no real reason to go on with it. You know, we're not getting the bonus, but the president has shown he's willing to help. Yeah, and Eleanor wound up doing a better job than some of FDR's own aides did, as I remember in your book. Uh, so anyway, let me remind our listeners, yes, you're, you're listening to Eric Rauschway. He's an historian from the University of California, Davis, a distinguished author. Uh, Why the New Deal Matters is his book that we're discussing today. Let's take a tour of America, Eric, and uh, learn the impact of the New Deal, starting with uh, the Tennessee Valley. What was life like back in the early part of the 20th century for those farmers and townsfolk who were uh, fighting Mother Nature, you might say. Well, the Tennessee River Valley runs through the upper south. It runs The Tennessee River runs through a you know, half dozen or so states from its headwaters in Virginia and West Virginia before it joins up with the Ohio. It's a naturally you know, well-irrigated valley because of the river. Um, it was a valley that a lot of natural riches had already been taken out of in the form of coal and lumber uh, by the early 20th century. 
And it was a valley that had been, many farmers like to say, sort of farmed out uh, because of intensive farming and erosion from the flooding of the river had taken a lot of the nutrients away from what was otherwise the best soil, the bottomlands near the river. It was a sort of, therefore, generations of poverty uh, found themselves in the Tennessee River Valley there in the Upper South. Um, it was the birthplace of the original, the 1870s version of the Ku Klux Klan. And it was a, a place of sort of strife and unhappiness in many respects and uh, sort of subsistence farming at best. And the Roosevelt administration picked up from a Republican senator's effort to modernize the Tennessee River Valley. This was George Norris, who was a senator of Nebraska, and who really believed that public works could help improve the life of ordinary Americans, particularly in farming communities. And he wanted to build hydroelectric dams to control the flooding of the river, so therefore it wouldn't wash away as much topsoil. It would also be more navigable, so you could have more commerce coming into and out of the valley, which would encourage industry and agriculture there. And of course, in generating electricity, they would also help introduce more modern forms of at least small-scale industry and, you know, sort of domestic appliances and other amenities of life into the valley. Roosevelt expanded this idea greatly in, the, again, the first days of his administration with something called the Tennessee Valley Authority, which had the instructions to build these dams on the Tennessee River and to use them to kind of modernize the whole region. And it was novel in American politics because usually we think of politics as happening at the level, you know, sort of either at Washington and the national government or of the state and local governments. But this is sort of thinking in terms of a kind of a natural region created by the river itself, thinking of the river watershed as a whole. And so they worked with the CCC and other New Deal programs to sort of reforest and repopulate with uh, suitable wildlife the region, to introduce fertilizers into the region, to make more what we would nowadays call sustainable farming programs in the region. They worked with local farmers to teach them these techniques. And of course, again, they built dam after dam after dam to regulate the river and to generate electricity, um, which then they allowed local organizations, farmers' cooperatives, to determine the distribution of that electricity. So they pushed power, literally, downwards into the hands of localities, where it still is in the Tennessee uh, River Valley. I fielded a call from a reporter not too long ago who wanted to know a little bit about the TVA because he said that the Tennessee River Valley was working on extending internet along the same lines uh, as the electricity had been extended during the New Deal, because, of course, they already had both the physical plant and the cooperative structure to do it. By the way, I can personally attest to the legacy of the Norris Dam, which you give uh, quite a bit of attention to in your book, and Norris Lake, which was created by damming up, I think it was the Clinch River. And the reason That's I right. can personally attest to it is that I have a fish on my wall, a small <laughs> smallmouth bass, uh, I'm a catch-and-release guy, but I was fishing Norris Lake many years ago, and we caught these smallmouth bass all day long. It was the most incredible fishing expedition I ever had. And at the end of the day, there was this one that was just a little larger than the rest, and the guy I was with said, why don't you just take that one home and put it on the wall? And it still sits on my wall, and I had no – to be honest about it, until I read your book, I didn't 
completely understand the significance. If you go on Google now and put in Norris Lake, Knoxville uses Norris Lake as one of their big chamber of commerce attractions. It's only up the road a bit. And it's a monstrous place for resorts and marinas and all kinds of activity that I'm sure wasn't FDR's first objective, but uh, he created something that has a life all of its own down there. Well, that's right. And, and you know, I mean, so you've correctly pointed out some of the, the, the nice aspects, let's say, of what Norris Lake does. And it, it was always part of the vision, right, of the New Deal, that they were not only just going to sort of give jobs and improve the economy, really improve people's lives materially. And so recreation, like what you're describing on Norris Lake with the fishing and the boating and the swimming and yeah. all the other encampments around, was always part of the New Deal. And parks and swimming pools and playgrounds were a huge part of what uh, the New Deal did. Yeah. It's worth pointing out, of course, that in order to have a dam, you know, you have to have a reservoir behind the dam. That's how you regulate flooding is by controlling the flow of the river, which means that you do, in creating that reservoir, flood out an area where people used to live. And so, you know, you have to make choices right. when you make these large-scale improvements, right? There are trade-offs. Mm -hmm. Some people lose their land. Some people lose their farms. Some people who, I mean, they got compensated if they owned farms. If they just worked farms, though, there wasn't any compensation for them, you know, and there was no uh, way to really sort of compensate, uh, you know, native peoples for loss of the access of their ancestral lands and things like that. So there were these, you know, considerable trade-offs that were made as a result of these decisions to, as they thought, on balance, improve American life. Could you also address the fact that the TVA did not necessarily bring all the residents of the region along? I mean, you mentioned the, the Native Americans and their ancestral lands, but African Americans at the time, uh, I don't know whether you could put them in the same category of benefits that you put the white folks down there. No, well, and this is uh, characteristic of the New Deal in the South, particularly, right? I mean, one of the more important things that the New Deal does in the big picture is it makes black voters into Democrats in the United States. Now, that may seem paradoxical, given what you just said and what I'm about to say, but you have to keep that in the back of your mind, yeah. right? That in the large scale, black voters decided the New Deal was better for them than whatever else was on offer. But in the specifics, and particularly in the South, um, where the Democratic Party was the party then of segregation, right? You had a New Deal that was administered by local Democrats and which put together segregation on public works and segregation in the resulting facilities that were built. So, you know, black folks did have jobs building dams on the TVA, but they quite often didn't have better jobs, right? They had less opportunity for improvement in their circumstances. I mean, one of the great things about the TVA for many workers, for white workers, was that it was an engine of uh, social mobility, that people could learn a more elaborate trade like plumbing or electricity and then go on to apply that trade elsewhere. Those opportunities were less available uh, to black workers. And that's true, as I say, throughout the South, that's one of the reasons that a lot of black folks began to leave the South and to go work on other New Deal programs in northern cities for the Works Progress Administration, for example, which was bound by law not to discriminate on the basis of race. So you're absolutely correct that there's a decidedly mixed record uh, with respect to African-Americans and particularly in the South. You're listening to Eric Rauchway. He's the author of Why the New Deal Matters. Well, let's move right along and over to northeastern Arizona. How does the Navajo Nation fit into your tale of the New Deal? 
Well, I wanted to put this in here because I think uh, it's too often neglected uh, in books on the New Deal. And I think it's actually an important piece of the puzzle, which is what was then called the sort of the Indian New Deal, or more properly, the Indian Reorganization Act of 1934, or the Wheeler-Howard Act. And this came on the heels of decades of the federal government having a kind of standing policy of seeking to break up native nations, to parcel out their land to individuals as landowners, and to disregard the sovereignty of native peoples. And the New Deal reversed that with what was called the Indian New Deal, which uh, not only plowed in a large sum of public money into specifically uh, native uh, nation restoration projects. So there was something that was like an Indian CCC, the Indian Emergency Conservation Work Program, where there was lots of, uh, you know, sort of erosion control and public works being done on reservations in the one that I, that I talked about, the, uh, the Navajo Nation, the entire capital city. Uh, of the Navajos as uh, a New Deal construction. It's, it's window rock. It's sort of still there and still in use, as well as lots of dams there in that area to try to control erosion. And the program was also to recharter uh, Native nations as sovereign entities so that the federal government could begin to deal with them on that basis and to restore to them some control over their lands. So all of that sounds terrific, and indeed for, for many Native peoples that was terrific, but I wanted to focus on the Navajos because you can see some of the ways it didn't work so well, and it's important to, to sort of think about ways in which these uh, sort of well-intentioned and in many cases, you know, projects with good outcomes still have some failings. Um, the Navajos had... Uh, a tradition of self-government outside of this structure, and they kind of resented this federal uh, imposition of a new form of self-government, and they existed kind of in a state of conflict with the Bureau of Indian Affairs during the New Deal, and uh, it, it ended up not very fond of Roosevelt's Commissioner of Indian Affairs. I see the clock is running out here, but I want to get in two questions and then let our our listeners pick it up from there. They can read the details in your book. Again, it's Why the New Deal Matters by Eric Rauschway. Uh, first of all, Eric, uh, take us to San Francisco, to Hunter's Point. Just just summarize for us. What can you see from that vantage point that really is the legacy of the New Deal? Well, Hunter's Point is uh, near what many Americans may remember as the former Candlestick Park Stadium where the 49ers uh, and the Giants used to play. And if you stand sort of there and look in the direction of the city, you can see an awful lot of sort of New Deal landmarks. You can see the Bay Bridge, uh, which was largely constructed by New Deal programs that connects San Francisco to Oakland across the San Francisco Bay. You can even, if left to the left of that, see the Golden Gate Bridge, which spans the uh, you know San Francisco to Marin uh, entrance to the San Francisco Bay, parts of which were built by New Deal programs. You can see Coit Tower, uh, which is a landmark uh, on the waterfront or near the waterfront of San Francisco, which has murals that were painted by New Deal artists. You can see the neighborhoods in which a number of New Deal schools uh, were built, particularly one for kids with disabilities and other uh, what were then called uh, you know, handicaps that prevented them from learning in the regular schools. But of course, as I point out in the book, if you're standing uh, in the vicinity of Hunter's Point, it's also a predominantly African-American neighborhood that was, because of New Deal housing programs, left behind 
in much of enjoying much of the benefits of that infrastructure that was built uh, by New Deal programs because New Deal housing programs discriminated against black homeowners. I love the way you conclude the book, uh, basically pointing out to the reader that you really don't have to go to San Francisco, uh, Tennessee, or northeastern Arizona to get a feel for the legacy of the New Deal. Uh, You can get it right in your own neighborhood. And uh, I must admit, as I read that section, I thought, you know, I've walked my dog many a day here in Boise, Idaho, and every now and then I run across one of these little plaques in the sidewalk. (laughs) Uh, I wonder if you could sh- share share with us uh, something that you were trying to address there in that chapter. Well, right, because we like to talk about the Bay Bridge or the Norris Dam, these sort of magnificent and often quite inspiring public works. But really, the bulk of New Deal work was very humble stuff, roads and even, as you say, sidewalks, right, that there were tens of thousands of miles of sidewalks put in by the New Deal to make neighborhoods safer and to make older folks and kids safer as they moved along these new roads and these widened roads that the New Deal had helped build. This was the bulk of the work for roads and sidewalks that was done by the Works Progress Administration, which was the biggest employment program of the New Deal. It employed, you know, sort of in the neighborhood of 3 million Americans at any given time around the entire country. As I think I already mentioned, it was... um, forbidden to discriminate on the basis of race. It had awful lots of kinds of works, but the bulk of the work was, again, this sort of infrastructure work, this kind of humble infrastructure work of roads and sidewalks. And again, it was to enable a greater quality of life, of leisure, of recreation, of, you know, sort of just pedestrian getting around in your neighborhood and the community that goes along with that. So artists and craftsmen and painters of various sorts were really put to work by the WPA and any of us who've traveled, especially to places like uh, lodges and state parks and federal parks have seen some of their work. But I was really fascinated by the uh, attention you gave this, the role that these painters and their works played in helping Americans see the work of the New Deal from a different vantage point. Yeah, the um, art and literature of the WPA wasn't directed by any central committee, but it, you know, the folks who got these jobs tended to be inspired by the New Deal to focus on ordinary Americans and the nobility of the ordinary American experience. They wanted to reflect America back to the people who lived in it. So New Deal art very often, not always, but very often shows Americans working, right? Americans shopping, Americans at play, right? Americans of all kinds and colors and creeds, right? Doing all of the various things that we do in an ordinary daily basis, ennobled as the subject of paintings in the way that, you know, Renaissance businessmen and and noblemen would have been. Here are sort of ordinary people doing uh, the democratic things that make America work and seeing themselves in that kind of high art. And and I think that really is uh, the summation of your book. I mean, we we all know, I think, from even the most cursory uh, American history uh, review we we know what the New Deal did in economics. I think what you're pointing out here is that it was at a moment when FDR and his compatriots in the Congress felt that democracy needed to be stabilized. It needed to be strengthened. And that that, in fact, is uh, what you're reporting here. 
Absolutely. Don't forget that Adolf Hitler rose to power in Germany just a few months before Franklin Roosevelt took office for the first time. And the shadow of international Nazism and fascism in general is over everything that is being done, not only in the United States, but throughout the world in this period. You can see democracy in retreat, literally, through the 1930s, through in Europe and in Asia. And the United States begins to see itself as a key defender of democracy. And that's what the New Deal is about, is showing democracy as a positive value for which people are ultimately going to be prepared to fight come the Second World War. All of a sudden, I feel like I'm in 2021. <laughs> as I listen to, <laughs> to your remarks there. Um, and I want to talk about that because we do have in Congress right now, and by the time this runs on the radio and on the podcast, maybe the infrastructure bill will be signed by President Biden. But I wonder if you'd care to comment on the infrastructure bill as um, you know, uh, an offspring of the New Deal many years later. But gee, as I hear you talk about how uh, the New Deal was bringing democracy back. You can't help think we need a little bit of that in America right now. Yeah. I mean, back in the spring, President Biden invoked the New Deal and with that specific idea in mind that it was an effort to restore Americans' faith in democracy. I mean, the, the, that's what the public works programs of the New Deal did showed Americans that this government is good for Americans, not just for a few, but for all of us. And that's what public works can do. You know, if you can put people to work, people begin to realize that they're being paid to do a good job, a job that will benefit themselves and their children. You know, uh, we talked about sort of the environmental crises of the 30s as they were, the, the worry about soil exhaustion and erosion and the need for more sustainable ways of life. You know, we face something, I suppose, similar today in terms of our modern climate crisis. And we do, I think we're in general agreement, need to address that in ways that are both acute in terms of avoiding the emergencies that we have and of longer duration sort of planning for a future that we can see a more durable way of living on the land that we have. So there's some obvious analogies in the, the kind of tasks uh, that we need to undertake. And if we could undertake them successfully together, I think would give us a bit more faith in our ability to govern ourselves. Well, Eric, we skipped over some of uh, some aspects of your book because we are limited by time here. But again, I want to recommend to our listeners why the New Deal matters. There's a lot to learn about our past, and certainly uh, that plays into what's going on today and tomorrow. I want to thank you for writing the book, first of all, and secondly, for agreeing to be on Reader's Corner. Again, it's Why the New Deal Matters by Eric Rauchway. Thanks for joining us today at Reader's Corner. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Reader's Corner is presented by Boise State Public Radio News. The engineer for today's show is Eric Jones with production by Joel Wayne. Don't forget, Reader's Corner is also a podcast. You can find it on any one of your favorite search engines. I'm Bob Kustra. Please join me next week as we talk to today's leading writers about the ideas and issues that help shape our world at Reader's Corner. <laughs>